Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Ruth, chapter 2. We've begun a study of, of this short book, one of only two books in the Bible named after a woman and the only book named after a Gentile woman. If you are using the Bibles there in the chairs in front of you, it's on page 185. We'll be looking at this passage in Ruth 2 in just a moment. In 1844, a former missionary and current pastor, Richard Nill, was traveling and went to Stamburn, England, where he stayed in a parsonage. And as he was there in the parsonage, he took an interest in a 10-year-old boy that was the grandson of the minister's, of the minister that was there in that, that church. He started including the boy in his morning activities. As he would read the Bible, he was seeking to teach him and, and really instruct him in the Word of God. And he shared the gospel with him. The man had a, a burden for the boy's spiritual condition. And one day, the day that he was leaving, Mr. Nill gathered the family together and he took that boy, that 10-year-old, on his knee and he announced to the family, he said, I believe that one day this boy will preach to great multitudes. And I believe he will preach in the chapel where that pastor was currently pastoring. At this point, the boy had not even yet trusted the Lord as his personal Savior. And then he gave the boy six pence, about the equivalent of six pennies, as a reward if he would memorize a certain hymn. And he promised that when he preached in the church where that pastor was currently pastoring, he said, will you promise me that you will have them sing this hymn? And so the boy agreed. Years later, Dr. Alexander Fletcher was supposed to deliver the sermon to the children at Surrey Chapel in London. He became ill. So they asked that boy, who was now a young man and a preacher, if he would deliver the annual sermon to the children. He agreed on one condition. He said, I will preach, but you must allow the children to sing the song, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Because I made a promise long ago that I would do that. And the preacher was filled with emotion as the children sang these words. God moves in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never-failing skill, He treasures up His bright designs and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. After the hymn was sung, the young preacher 
Charles Spurgeon got up to preach. He records this in his autobiography in the fifth chapter that nine or ten years earlier, Richard Nill had had that influence in his life and caused Spurgeon to realize if he were ever to be a preacher, he must first of all turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. And understanding that need, you know, God truly does move in mysterious ways. The book of Ruth is a book that provides a vivid illustration of God's mysterious workings. In the first chapter, as we have considered this, we find what that song refers to as the frowning providence. Acknowledging God is in control, but sometimes the circumstances are difficult. The difficulties that we saw, now the second chapter begins to reveal his smiling face. As he brings Ruth and a man named Boaz together. I want us to consider this morning how the relationship happened. And understanding the providence of God in, in first of all, bringing them together and then what it was in their lives that attracted them to each other. You know, it's been said that, that we read providence backwards, which is an interesting statement when you consider the etymology of the very word coming from the Latin, pro means ahead or before, and vidir, vidir or we get our word video, to see. And so it's to see before, but we understand it as we look backwards. Now, in a theological context, it, it involves more than simply foresight. It's God's divine care and protection as he accomplishes his purpose. That God's providential pr control does not remove or excuse human responsibility or irresponsibility. And sometimes God's providence is preventing human action. Sometimes he permits it. He, he lets people do what they want. Sometimes he overrules, other times he limits. For instance, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond which you are able to bear, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13. That's God's providence. So while the idea of providence is God's foreknowledge and divine control, we, we better understand it looking backwards. You know, I can see that in my life, things that, that God has worked in ways, in closed doors that I tried to push open. And other times push me through doors that I really hadn't planned to go through. And you look back and see the hand of God. And what I want us to understand from this passage this morning is that you are to conduct yourself wisely while trusting the Lord to direct your steps. Look with me at Ruth chapter 2, because here we see God's providence in a chance meeting in a random field of a distant relative of Ruth's dead husband. And this chapter begins to give the hope in a, after a chapter of despair. Follow with me as we begin reading in Ruth chapter 2, verse 1. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please, let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. 
Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, Who was in charge of the reapers? Whose young woman is this? So the servant, who was in charge of the reapers, answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please, let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go from here, but stay close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face and bowed to the ground. And she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, It has been fully reported to me that all you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and have come to the people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said to him, let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me with the, and spoken kindly to your maidservant, though I am not like one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come, come here and, and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she arose to glean... Boaz commanded the young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also, let grain fall from the bundles, fall purposefully for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw that she had gleaned and so brought out and gave her what she had also kept back after she had been satisfied. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we look into your word, we pray that we would have hearts that trust you to provide and meet our needs and not lean to our own understanding. That in, in wisdom, we would acknowledge you and that we would allow you to direct our steps as we faithfully serve you. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen. As we look into this passage, I want us to see that Naomi's really helping Ruth, and Ruth's steps are being directed by the Lord. I mentioned that chapter 2 provides hope after a chapter of despair. Chapter 1 was a departure from the land of, of promise, going into Moab. It was a, a chapter that told of death, and it was really a chapter of discouragement. And yet chapter 1 ends with this glimmer of hope, this light that's coming through the window that it, with the statement at the end of chapter 1, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. That doesn't mean a lot to us, but that was significant because the barley harvest would then be followed by the wheat harvest. So the timing here is such that they're coming at the very time that there would be many crops available. It just so happened 
that this is when they showed up. There would be food that would be relatively plentiful. Now, chapter 2 introduces us to a character, a man named Boaz. As you read the story, you learn that he's a relative of Naomi's husband. But, but what we read in verse 1 is, is really the English translation gives us a little more than the Hebrew does. The Hebrew word initially introduces him as an acquaintance, a close friend or acquaintance of Elimelech's. Now, we'll find out, and we read in verse 20, he is a relative. He can be that kinsman redeemer. But if you're hearing the story verbally for the first time, you're being introduced to a man who was a friend of Elimelech's. And it would raise the question, so what part is he going to play in this? But for this relationship between Ruth and Boaz to blossom, they have to meet. I mean, there's, there's an irony in how this story is actually being presented. It's, it's understating the work of God in order to highlight the work of God. So in verse 3, when it, when it says that she happened upon the field, it's literally, she chanced her chance. It just so happens she goes to this field, and it's the work of God directing the steps. The first thing I want us to see is that the providential care of the Lord is that God gives us direction. Yet for God to give direction, we have to behave wisely. So while you must behave wisely, understand that God directs the path. Ruth and Naomi have come back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, but their situation really has not changed much. They still are in need. And Naomi's focus of the bitterness of life was really not a very winsome attitude. We, we talked about that last week. They're, they're, her attitude would really kind of push people away. So what's going to provide? There's no meal train being set up to supply meals for them as they're coming back and trying to get reestablished. And yet she's not focused, while Naomi is focusing on herself, Ruth is looking at how she can solve the situation. You know, when, when life is difficult, a person becomes bitter when they focus on the negative circumstances. They allow that to eat away, and then they miss God's blessing. Understand, God's grace is bigger than your bitterness. And you can really tell a bitter person when they struggle to see God's blessing. You know, when a marriage is struggling, and if I ask somebody, so, so tell me five things that you love about your spouse. If they have a hard time coming up with something there's going to be a problem. And especially if they come up with five and they're all selfish. Well, they do this for me and they do this for me. And it's like, no, that's not what we're talking about. Naomi is struggling. But Ruth offers to help. She said, let me, let me go to work. Let me go to the field. She probably understood what God's law had established. God had actually provided for this very situation under the Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19 says, When you reap the harvest in your field and forget the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to it. It shall be for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord may bless you in all the work of your hands. In Leviticus 19, 19 and, and Leviticus 23, 22, there, there was also the instruction that, you, that the harvesters were not to, to get to the very edges of their field. They were to leave the corners. And the reason was for the stranger and the poor. So God was providing for those who were in need. It was, it was really the welfare system, but to get it, they had to go work. 
It wasn't somebody just handing it to them. They had to go. And that's the biblical pattern both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. In 2 Thessalonians 3.10, it says, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, it doesn't say if they can't work, but it says if they won't work. You know, hunger is a great motivation to overcome laziness. And that's really what God was laying out. He was not going to reward sloth, but he was making provision that they could go forward. Now, now that's what the law said. Do you think that at this time in history, the time of the judges, that everyone obeyed the law? Do you think they just left that when it's like, well, I'm leaving money on the table? No, this was the time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And yet Ruth is willing to go out and to serve, to work, to, to see this. And by doing that, God arranges a meeting with Boaz. Because if they don't meet, they're not going to marry. But God can handle it. She happened to go to his field. He happened to come from Bethlehem. He happened to notice her. Now, recently we, we had a, a leadership staff get together and our, with our spouses, and, and I asked each of the 14 couples to go around and share how they met their spouse. And we had a great time. We heard some wonderful stories. And, and, and we laughed a lot. But what stood out was how God brought people together in so many different ways, or, or brought them together, but initially there was no interest. And then how that developed. You know, we can trust God to provide. We don't have to manipulate circumstances. The second thing I want to see is that you must understand personal relationships are not only individualistic, but there's a greater picture. Yes, marriage is about us and our spouse, but it's not just about us. Marriage is really for ministry. God was involved. He arranges this meeting. He brings these two together. He brings Ruth from a foreign country to meet Boaz in a field in Bethlehem. He can do the same thing today. There's 8 billion people in the world. And he does it all the time. And so Ruth, in verse 2, is, is looking for a place where, as a foreigner, as a Moabitess, she can work after him in whose eyes she finds favor. Somebody who will be kind to a foreigner. We need to understand that marriage is a covenantal relationship that impacts family and ministry. That we, we think of it in that way, that marriage is for ministry and serving the Lord together. And you know, I, My wife is such a help to me in ministry. In fact, when we first were married, I got job offers, not because they wanted to hire me, they wanted to hire her. I, I was offered to be a bus captain at one church. They said, well, you know, we'd love to have you come there. Your wife can teach in our school, and oh, you can work with buses. Like, no, I can't. But to be part of that for ministry, Ruth, Ruth is not looking for a husband. She's looking for food. She's consent, content to serve her mother-in-law. In fact, her mother-in-law had told her, you're better off staying in Moab. You have a better chance of finding a husband than you do coming to Bethlehem. And I say this because I want us to understand that, that there is a biblical gift of singleness. Years ago, I came across a list in the book, Reclaiming Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And, and I think it's important for us to understand because we're going to be talking about marriage. But understand, number one, that God is sovereign over who gets married and who doesn't marry. He can be trusted. He will do good to those who trust Him. And, he, and it's not His will for everybody to be married. It's better to be single than wish you were. 
You know, marriage is, is, as we know it, is not the final destination of humanity. That recognizing that, that this is not the end. Jesus said in the resurrection there will be ne- neither marry nor will they give in marriage, but will be like the angels, Matthew twenty two thirty. 30. And so recognizing that, number three, Jesus Christ was fully human and he was never married. That when we understand the goal is to be Christ-like, we can, we can honor the Lord, even if it's God's will that you be single. Number four, singleness is called a gift from God. 1 Corinthians 7, 7, that, and, and understand with God's gift comes the grace to be pure. But no one has to be alone because there's a relationship, as Christ had relationships and in a closeness with many different people. And so developing those points of encouragement. And number five, understand that mature manhood and womanhood are not dependent on being married. That as a church family, we need to be careful because we have a college, we have a seminary, we have a lot of single individuals. We need to be careful not to put an undue pressure or an unfair pressure on people who are single. If you really believe that God's providential care is such that He can be trusted, then it's one thing to pray, but it's a different thing to meddle or manipulate. We can pray, but don't push. Because the last thing you want is for somebody to feel pressure to settle for something that isn't God's will. What was it that drew Ruth and Boaz together? Well, first of all, it was God's providential guidance in that meeting but then beyond that, what attracted them was character, a godly character. So do you want a God-honoring marriage? Then find somebody who honors God. And I want us to see the character that is laid out that it really we find in these verses because the personal character of the individual is necessary to have that godly conduct. And we see that in this passage. Now understand that... that Ruth was attractive to Boaz and Boaz to Ruth, but the attraction was not superficial. In fact, we're told nothing about their appearance. And it's important that we prize what the Bible prizes. Biblical attributes, not merely physical attraction. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Godliness becomes attractive with time. First thing I want us to look at is the character of Boaz. There are several things we see about him. Number one, he was a man of integrity. Boaz was a man of means. It says a, a man of great wealth. But, but the, the statement there actually has the idea of he was a worthy man. It's the masculine equivalent to Proverbs 31.30. It speaks of somebody of noble and respectable character. Obviously, he had standing in the community. He owns fields. So, you know, whatever Ruth's list was, you know, you know tall, check, you know, dark, check, wealthy, check, mate, you know, there, there's an interest. He, he has, but he has a man of integrity. We also see that it was a man who showed spiritual sensitivity. Notice how he greets his workers in verse 4. He, he doesn't use the normal greeting of shalom. He comes out and says, the Lord be with you. The, the common greeting of peace, of shalom, and both to, to greet and say goodbye, but he's showing a genuine spiritual interest in his employees and his workers. He, he sees them as souls, not merely servants. 
And I don't believe he's using this as a flippant, just, you know, it's kind of a filler statement. Well, the Lord be with you and the Lord be with you. You know, we have to be careful that we don't use God's name flippantly as filler. But I think he was very serious. He's genuinely concerned for God's blessing on his servants. And it's interesting, you know, you can, you can learn things about a person by the greetings, how they greet others. Are they willing to speak? Or are they focused on themselves? Boaz is, Boaz is a godly man, and that godliness is going to become even more attractive over time. The third thing that we see, though, is he displays respect. In verse 8, he speaks to Ruth and he says, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? He, he's, he's really demonstrating a propriety. He isn't trying to flatter her or charm her. This, this, you know, in fact, this passage actually highlights it seems to be an age difference. Both verses 5 and verse 6 highlight the fact that she was young. And now he's calling her my daughter. That isn't a way, if you want to start a relationship, that's not the phrase to use. You know, college students don't use that if you're trying to develop a relationship. If you're not sure what to say, talk to the college president, the dean of students. They can help you out. But calling her my daughter, isn't it? But he's showing a respect. He's demonstrating that, uh, that he will treat her properly. A fourth thing we see is he extends protection. We see that in both verses 8 and 9. Remember the time. The, the passage began, the book begins with the statement, it was in the days of the judges. The last verse of the book before of Judges says that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was not a safe situation. And, and, and Ruth is putting herself in a position of vulnerability just going out. And Boaz understands that. And then he tells her, stay close to my young women and I have commanded the men not to touch you. He's protecting her. Boaz provides protection, not just in telling his servant men not to touch her, but in telling Ruth, don't go anywhere else. Stay in my fields. You know, that, that's a picture of biblical masculinity. Biblical masculinity protects women in a way that is appropriate for the relationship. You know, it used to be that you would, you would hear if a, if a ship was going down at sea that, that women and children were to get in the lifeboats first. Why was that? It wasn't because women are better swimmers. It really was a biblical understanding of the role of biblical masculinity to protect. And here Boaz offers a level of protection where he's willing to even suffer some financial loss to protect her. That's what biblical masculinity does. And, and mature femininity receives and affirms such protection in a way that is appropriate for the differing relationships. But we see that in Boaz. A fifth thing is he offers provision. He, he invites her to eat with them, to drink of the water that, her men have drawn, that his men have drawn. You, you see in Boaz, this is a man who's a giver. He's not a taker. And I think it's important for our young people to learn. You know, if they're not ready to protect and provide, they really aren't in a position where they should be dating. And if they're not ready for marriage, they're setting themselves up for a dangerous situation if they get into a serious relationship. I heard one preacher say it this way. I thought it was excellent. He said, it's like going shopping when you don't have any money. You will either be very frustrated or you will take something that doesn't belong to you. 
Be on guard. Boaz provides. Sixth thing we see is he demonstrates benevolence. He's a kind person. And Ruth responds to this kindness. She says, how have I found favor in your eyes? I'm a foreigner. He wasn't just being nice to his staff. He's being nice to a foreign lady. Kindness and gentleness are characteristics of the spirits working in a person's life. That's what Galatians 5, 22 and 23 tell us. Philippians 4, 5 says, Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy 6, 11, it says, The man of God is told to pursue love, patience, and gentleness. These are characteristics of the Holy Spirit working. Gentleness is the expressing personal care in an appropriate way to another's needs. I'm sure that there were landowners at this time in history that were not as compassionate as Boaz and probably had more money. But they're not listed in the lineage of Jesus. If you want to know someone's character, watch how they treat people who can't help them. That's when you find out if they're real. And don't be fooled because somebody plays a role. You know, I've, I've seen guys play the role of being a Christian because they knew that was the only way they could get a girl's attention. Oh, he said he's a Christian. Does he live like a Christian? If you want a Christ-honoring marriage, you have to have somebody who's honoring Christ. Boaz displays the characteristics of godly conduct that, that are become more attractive with time. They're characteristics that all of us ought to seek to try to develop. But they're vital. But I want us to look at the character of Ruth as well. I think we see several things about Ruth. Number one, Ruth showed initiative. We see this in verse 2 as she goes to Naomi and says, please, let me go to the field. She didn't sit around expecting somebody to provide for her or take care of her. She saw a need and she seeks to remedy that need. She requests to, to go and it's not say, I'm going to go fill out some applications. This was very menial work. I mean, this is scrounging. Picking up the grain that got left behind or that didn't get cut. But she doesn't say, well, you know, that's really beneath me. I had a much better job back in Moab. But she sees a need and she wants to solve it. She wants to work. I think we see that she displayed honor as well. In her attitude toward Naomi that she left. She, she didn't say, Naomi, we ought to bo both go do this. You know, I, I, I saw you make that 75-mile trek from, from Moab to Bethlehem. You can do this. You know, we, we ought to both get out there and work. No, she's actually honoring her mother-in-law and showing honor for her age. And, and the way that she speaks to her, the way that she, she treats her, that honor is really an attitude, that, and it's usually revealed in our conversation. Ephesians 6, 2 says, Honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise. Young people develop this kind of a character, this kind of an attitude. Now, sometimes if a person is dishonorable, we have to expose that. And that's part of showing honor. But the attitude has to be proper. Third thing that we see is she exhibited humility. She recognizes that, that God and others are, are responsible for achievements in her life. As, as she's very gracious, she goes and says, please, can I glean and gather among the reapers? You know, I, I think we see it in a couple of ways. She, one, she, she took advice. She looked to someone who cared for her, her mother-in-law. She's asking, can I go? Is this? And, and you'll find out as you read through the book, as you see in the coming chapters, she listens to her mother-in-law. She takes advice. 
A humble person will seek counsel from people who care about them. And, and they'll be willing to listen. Now, if somebody asks our advice, we need to give it in a way that is winsome and not drive them away. But a humble person is not a know-it-all. And, and how important this is when making a major life decision, like who you're going to marry. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that you couldn't pick clothes that matched. Do you really want to pick your spouse without anybody else's input? You know, it's important to understand. And, and folks, I've done enough counseling. I've seen enough bad situations. Years ago, I, when, I, when I was in college, when I was in college, our evening meal was served family style. So you got assigned to a table, and then you would be at that table for three weeks, and then they would mix it up in other people. And it gave you a chance to meet people, but you didn't get to pick who you sat with. You know, my sister was in college with me, so we got to pick. We, we were signed up together, and so she would be the hostess, I'd be the host, and we were always at that same table, and then other people would come. And, and one time, there was this, this young lady who was sitting at our table, and during those weeks, you get to know a person. And so we struck up a, a conversation, and, and she asked me one day, she was, mentioned a gentleman that she was... was somewhat interested in. They were having some interest in each other. But she had some concerns. And she wanted to know what kind of reputation he had in the spiritual realm. And I said, I don't know him, but I'm more than happy to ask around. And I had a, a good friend who was in a better position to know, so I went to him and I said, you know, what do you know about this individual? And he said, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy, but there's no real spiritual interest. He has, he has no reputation of showing interest in spiritual things. And so I went back to her and I said, look, this, you know, I don't know him, but this is the reputation he has among other dorm students. There's not an interest in spiritual things. Well, she broke it off. Ended up marrying a wonderful man. They're faithfully serving the Lord in ministry today. I've followed their ministry. We've seen each other from time to time. They're faithful in ministry. But it was a few years after that that I received a report that the other guy, had won first place in his state in Mr. Gay USA competition. Now, we weren't seeing that at the time, but we did see there was not a spiritual interest. Are you willing to take advice? You know, a person who runs from advice is probably pursuing something they know, already know doesn't please the Lord. And they don't want to hear it. She took advice. The second thing that shows her humility was that she asked permission. She didn't say, you know, I know what the law says. I have a right to be in this field. She didn't assume that she could just pick up the remnants, even though that was the right of a widow under the law. But rather than demanding her rights, she demonstrated grace. 1 Peter 3 is a passage that's actually addressed to, to wives that have unbelieving husbands. And it says, rather than the outward adornment and fine apparel, it is better to be adorned inwardly and it says, the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, that's not in vogue in America. But the verse goes on and says, this is very precious in the sight of God. A spirit that honors the Lord. You see that in Ruth. But we also see that she was a diligent woman. She came and continued from morning until now. She took a little break. She's, she's working hard. She was a hard worker. And in one day, she's already got that reputation. She worked all day. And then at the end of the day, she threshed out the grain that she had collected. And then she carries it home. She was strong. Because she ended up with a lot more grain than normally would happen. And she doesn't even know it yet. 
Her mother-in-law is going to tell us, where did you get this? But she was a diligent, hard worker. Now, I, I think it's important to understand that, that diligence is that visualizing each task as an assignment from the Lord and then using our energies to accomplish it. It, it means that we're not doing eye service, as it says in Colossians 3, but we're doing it heartily as unto the Lord. And so Boaz invites her to come and to drink with the water of the men that, that they've provided because he knows that she's not a woman who's going to take advantage of his kindness. She's not going to just hang out and, and waste time. She's, she's going to work. I think a fifth thing that we see in Ruth, though, is she demonstrates courage. She acknowledges her standing as a foreigner. And she has the reputation, as Boaz says, I know you left your home, you left your parents, you came to a foreign country, and, and, and she's going out as a foreigner. She doesn't actually expect people to be nice to her. I mean, this, is the, this nation, Moab, is not a good friend to Israel. It was a nation that had mistreated Israel in the wilderness, oppressed them during the time of the judges. You read that in the early chapters of Judges. But Ruth wasn't going to be dissuaded just because somebody was mean to her. She actually expected less than kind treatment. And she was still willing to work. She said, how, how is it that I found favor in your eyes when I'm a foreigner? She didn't go home to Naomi and say, the other girls in the field were mean to me. I'm not going back. No, she got just the opposite. Why are you being nice to me? She was willing to go out and put herself in a, a, a less than comfortable situation outside her comfort zone so that she could serve. And then we see that she extended thankfulness. Verse 13. Notice that the thankfulness is another characteristic that we see in her. She says, if I found favor... And you've comforted me, you've spoken kindly to me. Her, her spirit of gratitude reveals her attitude of humility. Proud people are not grateful people. They, they expect. They deserve. And, and, and then they forget kindness done because that's what they, they deserved anyway. Dr. Bob Jones Sr. used to say, when gratitude dies on the altar of a man's heart, that man is well nigh hopeless. That, uh, and it shows that she was a thankful person. These are character traits that, that are attractive to Boaz. And the traits that we've seen in Boaz are attractive to Ruth. And what I want us to understand is that the practical consideration for our lives is that we, have, we can have a godly confidence. So how can we apply this this morning? The, the godly confidence is, number one, godly character is foundational to a lasting relationship. If we want a godly marriage, then we need to be godly people. And it's not just finding a spouse that way. We have to be that way. If you want a Christ-centered, God-honoring relationship, then be a Christ-centered, God-honoring person and find somebody like that and don't settle. And it first of all means that you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. Because we can develop certain characteristics and have developed character, but true Spirit's fruit has to come from the Spirit's working. And the fruit of the Spirit is that love, joy, peace, that patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, self-control. And there's no law against these things, is what the passage tells us. So how do you have that? Well, first of all, you come 
and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. Because God showed His love and mercy in sending His Son to die for us. We, we sang about His holiness earlier. But because of His holiness, our sin is separated from us from Him. And that's why Christ came. Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, so Christ died in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might receive the righteousness of God in Him. And understand the importance of this, that, that godly relationship. And make sure that, that in others, that if you're looking, if you're single and looking for somebody under, you need to make sure that that truly is their reputation. That it's not just a role they're playing. It ought to be observable and proven. Oh, but nobody knows him like I do. Really? You know, when did you become the seed of discernment and wisdom? In a few years when you say, well, he's changed. Actually, he didn't. He just quit playing the role. You've convinced yourself emotionally that that's a spiritual connection. Be careful. That we need to develop that. We need to encourage our young people in, in godly character. Secondly, God is a refuge to those who trust in Him. Say, well, if I, if I follow what you're saying, it's not going to happen. It depends on how big your God is. If he can take Ruth from a foreign country, worshiping foreign gods, to come under the wing of the God of Israel and introduce her to Boaz in a field when, when he's just wondering who this young lady is and, and is going to reach down and Naomi is going to have a grandson. And that grandson will be the grandfather of King David. We can trust God. But it depends on how well we know him. He isn't trying to mess up your life. He's not trying to mess up the happiness for, for Naomi and Ruth, even though Naomi comes back and says, don't even call me pleasant, Naomi. Call me Mara, bitter. God wasn't trying to mess up her life. But God was moving in a mysterious way to bring her back to the land of promise, to, to put her into the lineage of what God is doing. And God used food in the house of bread in Bethlehem to bring Naomi home. Even with that bitter taste in her mouth. And yet he's going to provide a husband for Ruth, a grandson for Naomi. And in Matthew chapter 1, Ruth would be one of four Old Testament women mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah. We can trust him. And finally, you can take comfort in the reality that God is almighty and all-merciful. In chapter 1, Naomi sees God as almighty, but she doesn't see him as merciful. She's going to start seeing that. We see it un unfolding. That the reality of this is God wants to work all things together for his glory and our good, and he will do it in his providential care. Another verse that Charles Spurgeon memorized for those six pennies was this. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Naomi came home with that bitter taste. But the story is getting sweet because God is working. When you conduct yourself wisely while trusting the Lord, He will direct your steps. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, 
and He will direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. Are we willing to trust Him and follow Him? Let's pray together.